Hey guys, what's good? You're listening to London College of Communications Value Talks, a series where we bring together figures from across the creative industries to chat about contemporary issues and the importance of creativity. I'm Timothy Ogu. I'm a multidisciplinary artist and a creative director, and I graduated from LCC back in 2017. Today, I'll be joined by three guests to discuss how to find and tell powerful stories, from identifying great ideas and linking artists and platforms to collaborating with new talent. You'll hear from fellow LCC grad Holly Fraser, Editor-in-Chief and Senior Director of Content over at We Present, Tash Walker, host and producer of the award-winning podcast The Logbooks and co-chair of the LGBTQ charity Switchboard, and Louise Moore, Managing Director of Penguin Michael Joseph, one of the biggest commercial publishing lists at Penguin Random House. It's time to hear from our panellists, but just a reminder, you can also head over to the LCC YouTube channel to watch our value talks as they happened. I hope you guys enjoy. I'm surrounded by an esteemed panel and I would like to go on the table. So Louise, would you introduce yourself first? My name is Louise Moore. Um, I'm very happy to say I'm a governor at UIL. Also, I work in publishing and I run a part of Penguin Random House, which is the largest publisher in the world. We publish commercial fiction and non-fiction. We have a big list and I've worked there for, well, over 20 years now. Hi, um, my name is Holly Fraser. I used to be a student at LCC, graduated in 2008 from the journalism course. Uh, I'm now the editor-in-chief of We Present, which is WeTransfer's digital arts and editorial platform, where we work with artists from all over the world to tell stories of creativity and representation. I'm Tash Walker. I work in queer history, archives, untold yeah. stories, around audio storytelling, podcast production, and also platform women and non-binary people in music. You are underrepresented. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming to you guys. First question I must ask is, how do you know which stories are worth telling? What What's the little includes that you get or what goes on when you hear an idea for a story? Well, for me, I can, I can dive right in. One of the biggest stories I've spent uh, several years telling mm-hmm. is around LGBTQI plus history. Mm-hmm. I grew up as I'm a queer person. I grew up not understanding or knowing anything around LGBT plus history and I think that's what it is. It's about telling a story that is ultimately mine that I never knew Mm. and finding these archives, going back into history, opening them up, reading something that not only represents me, but Mm. also so many other people, but that ultimately hasn't been told. So hidden histories, maybe we call them censored. Uh, But yeah, I think it's that, isn't it? A a retelling or a telling of something that you've never heard before. For me, I think it's something that makes you feel something. I commission, in my role, I commission stories across film, art, music, uh, design and literature. And we get, you know, so many submissions on a daily basis and they're all good, mostly. Um, But there's only a few that really kind of resonate and make you actually feel something. And one of the stories that we told most recently was a short film called The Long Goodbye, which was created by Riz Ahmed and the director um, Anil Kariya. And it's a sort of set in a semi sort of dystopian future, which looks at the rise of racism in Britain. Yeah. It's something that is not particularly far removed from the truth. And it's a story that when you watch it, you kind of feel like you've been sucker punched and you need to take a moment to sort of really let it sink in. And I think for me, it's stories that, you know, whether it's cross film or literature or music, as long as they have a resonance with an audience and really make you feel something, yeah. that's when for me, I know it's a good story. Amazing. What about you, Louis? Slightly different answer for me, I think, because we publish fiction and non-fiction. And I think there are two different responses for that. So a piece of non-fiction, something that's a true story, it's whether or not that person is authentic and they have a valid 
story to tell, mm. whatever it is, or they're going to help somebody or instruct somebody. Uh, if it's fiction, it's much more emotional response and it's around the, the voice yeah. more than anything. Um, but it's also, uh, for, for me, a story that works is always a story that's, if it's fiction, is is got completely got that that person, the person that's writing it, there's nothing between that person and what you're reading. Yeah. So with nonfiction, there can be something between that person and what you're reading because they they are giving you, they're unfolding often someone else's story, sometimes their own story, but they're, they're telling it almost at a distance. Yeah. With fiction, you've got to be right in the middle of it yeah. without a barrier. Yeah. And just to pick up on something. So it's how rather than yeah. what yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Louise. What I wanted to pick up from what you were saying from uh, in terms of nonfiction is most of the stories you're dealing with are still nonfiction, but do you still find that you have to be removed from it, from your the content or the creator? Or do you find that for your, in your two worlds, you want that person to be in it, whereas for Louise, it's more removed from it, if, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I think I know what you're saying. I think, um, you know, when I'm talking about sort of a, a good story for me is something that elicits some kind of an emotional response, mm -hmm. it doesn't need to mean that I come from that same lived experience as the person that is telling that story. But I think that so many good stories can be boiled down to sort of, you know, primal human emotion. And I think that that is something that quite often, regardless of, you know, background or where you're from or what your lived experience is, is something that we can all resonate with. So when I'm talking about stories that elicit an emotional response, I think that that is something that is quite universal. Yeah. And I completely agree with, you know, what everyone is saying. I think that for for too long, the, the people that have been able to tell those stories has been quite homogenized. Yeah. But now we're sort of entering into a, a realm where everyone has more of a voice, everyone's yeah. story is relevant. And we're seeing that people's stories that maybe were censored in the past or, you know, people that didn't have a platform to tell those stories are being given that platform. Yeah. And, you know, the powers that be are seeing mm -hmm. that these people's stories do have a resonance and are making a connection with people. Um, and so I think that, you know, talking about emotion, it sort of quite often for me boils down to that as a very base level. And I think that there are so many people telling important stories, but what connects them all is this emotion. So right. I think for me, you don't have to be in it in terms of fully understanding what that person has been through. And I don't think we'll ever be able to fully understand what different people have gone through depending on their background experience in life. But if you can have compassion and if you can connect with the story through that point, I think that's when for me it becomes extremely important to tell it. So you two actually are dealing with largely with true stories. So I think what I'm saying is, we deal with true stories as well. Mm. But if you're dealing with fiction, you somebody's you're dealing with someone's imagination. Yeah. You're dealing with someone's own total creativity. Mm. And where does that come from? And that to me is still a mystery somewhat yeah. after over 35 years. <laughs> because some people can do it and some people can't. <laughs> and it's no good. If you can't, you can't. Yeah. You know, and it, mm. I wish a few people had learned that. <laughs> so, yeah. Have any authors ever life? sort of said to you, this is where I get it from, or is it sort of a, uh, a secret for those ones you that you know? feel? I, I, yeah. I think maybe for fiction, a lot of the time, people who are very good, successful fiction writers have had something happen in their life, which is quite fundamental mm. and which triggers something which enables them to escape into mm. that part mm -hmm. of their brain where they can just 
let rip. But it's what I meant about not letting anything get between you and the page if you're a writer like that. Because if you're if you're having to if you're really having to work at what you're writing and think about it and analyze it constantly, it's gonna be much tougher to make it work yeah. if you can make it work at all. So it does just sort of come. And the most amazing thing I've ever seen, I used to, I worked for a long time before she died with Sue Townsend, who wrote Adrian Mole, mm. and she couldn't see at the end of her life. So she would actually write by talking, mm. and then I would type it up. Type it up. Mm. And I did it, wow. and her husband did it, and her granddaughter did it. And yeah, between the three, <laughs> three, mm. the three of us, we got it down. And you would actually see her doing that, and actually it it kind of, is sort of coming out of her because that's how she just forgot we were there in a way mm -hmm. and then sometimes she'd go and then she'd say read it back and you'd read it back and then she she'd just switch three words in a sentence and so that for me was kind of like the the kind of the cutting edge of watching a writer create yeah. because you don't you don't get that there's nothing more raw than that right? nothing yeah. raw than that because yeah. they're on their own storytelling is so fascinating though isn't it because it's like ways of survival throughout history mm -hmm. and folklore and music and all of those things are just different forms of storytelling and fiction I suppose is only ever based on something or some kind of emotional experience that you've had before and you recreate that in the characters that you have and through the the stories that I suppose I tell that I made this podcast called The Logbooks which is all about LGBTQ plus history and it's based on these true stories based on the physical logbooks that mm were written and made at this charity called Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline, started in 1974 and the logbooks run to 2003. Mm. And these stories are so incredibly relatable. I remember opening up, finding these logbooks and just being overwhelmed by how much of myself I saw in this. Mm. But I grew up thinking I was the only one person mm. like that. And these stories, despite being 70s, 80s, 90s, whenever, are so similar to what's happening today. And it's this retelling of stories, the relatability of it. Fiction, you know, you read an incredible book, fiction, and it, you suddenly you feel seen. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. That story is making a difference in your life and it will change the path that you go on. And what you were saying about whether you can relate to a story or not relate to a story, a new podcast I'm working on is still queer theme, but it's called Black and Gay Back in the Day. And it's based on a black um, queer, queer photo archive. And we're working with younger black LGBTQ plus people to take the photo literally down story lane and investigate what was happening at that time. Because these are stories that we've never heard before. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, so how can you, you know, if you can't look back to look mm. forward, mm -hmm. yeah. where does the fiction come from? Where does our future come from? I mean, the next question I have, I think you guys have kind of already answered it, but how do you identify how to tell a story? Like what medium? So I'm um, Louise, I'm sure you might predominantly work in books, but do you ever come across a book that like you like this needs to be a film? And for you guys both podcasts and in mostly in film and photography, I don't know. Film photography, yeah. yeah. Like, do you ever get it where it's the other way? It's like, oh, this would be amazing in print. Like, how do you know what the story needs? How do you know what how to best tell it? I I think for me, um, I, it, I think it's quite rare that a, well, a, dif a different book could come from another medium where someone thinks, I think podcasts are a great way to produce mm. books. And I'm always coming up with ideas mm. for new books, nonfiction books, predominantly listening to podcasts. I think, oh my God, I've got to yeah. find out a bit more about that. And then you hear who's involved in that. And then you can find a writer that way. So it's becoming a great way to find new writers actually for us. But films rarely you'd rarely you'd you'd never really want a book after a film has come out to be written like a film mm -hmm. but actually we get a lot of film scouts and and uh, come to us because they're looking because 
they are very successfully making so many books from films and they have done from well since you know films began <laughs> yeah, so, much, yeah. so so but but i don't think the two work hand in hand i think probably all the three or the four mm -hmm. or i think they're all different mediums they only all need their own creative values yeah. to work you can't just go i'm going to do it like the book or i'm going to do it like the podcast you have to think of it in a different way because you're receiving it as a as a as an audience in a different way that you're listening to it. I mean, it's interesting that the, the, the audiobook mm. industry has just gone through the roof. I can't remember how many percentage points we are up on our as as part of a sale, and we're seeing some of our print sales go into audio now because people love listening to stories. Mm. That's that's the best thing ever, mm. isn't it? And it's I, you know it's another author of my name, Stephen Fry, and he's narrated a lot of audiobooks. And when you go to book signing with him, the mostly what you hear is. I listen to such and such all the way round you know, America or my you kids. Have, sleep. Yes, my kids have gone to sleep. You yeah. Sleep. Yeah, listening to your voice. And you think how lovely, because you're combining a fiction with that kind of the the the, the talent of mm. but actually a lot of actors are terrible at audiobooks because they don't it's a different it's a different st st mm -hmm. skill. Do you reading. think that helps to remove the barrier that you were talking about before? Because it's this intimacy that it's going into your ear. Maybe. Suddenly you're not interacting with the book. You're just being submerged in the sound. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And I think for people who find it difficult to read, of which there are many, many mm -hmm. millions, and for lots of different reasons, audio is amazing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Imagine yeah. you could listen to the whole of... Jane Austen or, yeah. or, or, or whatever you want to listen to without having to struggle with those words. And I think it's an interesting one, I think, because reading a story is a very calming thing as well, because yeah. you have to give yourself to it. Whereas if you're watching something, mm -hmm. you can think about other things at the same time. And I, I think people who have a lot of anxiety reading particularly is a brilliant way to yeah. deal with that because you can't commit yeah. to anything else when you're doing that. We're, we're all different, aren't we? Like how we learn is different. And I think there's something, there's something innate about being told a story. Like when we're a kid, it's like, read me a story to go to bed, right? Yeah. But like, yeah. for my example, myself, I find I tried, I need to try with audiobooks more, but I tried with one audiobook. It didn't really work for me. The actual act of reading I think it's because I'm quite active, yeah. slows yeah. me down. And even yeah. though I'm not the best reader, I wouldn't say I've read many, many books in my time. Yeah. But when I get into it, just the act of like yeah. knowing it's an accomplishment, I don't know, maybe I just like to... It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but it gives you focus, doesn't yeah. it? I think yeah. that, you know, if we're thinking about the type of artwork and content and everything that's out there at the moment, there is so much that yeah. you're constantly, you know, when you go on Netflix or something, you spend half an hour flicking through mm. before you choose what to listen to. Yeah. When you go and sometimes a podcast, you know, on your phone, you're flicking through and you're like, oh, I don't know what these are about. But actually picking up a book that you have chosen to pick up and that you were committed to finishing allows you to focus on something for a lot longer than mm. I think we're allowed to or we allow ourselves to focus mm. on other types of content mm. throughout our daily lives now. And I, I know a lot of journalists, for example, that find it really hard to read, sit down and read a book now because they spend their whole day yeah. reading and editing other people's copies. So I think in that sense, that's yeah. when something like a podcast is really important because it's just another way of actually being able to yeah. absorb the information. Yeah, sure. But I think for, for me, I, I'm a big reader and I think that it's about, like what you were saying, Tim, focus and being able to slow your mind for a mm. moment and stop the like emails and notifications mm. and actually focus on someone else's mm. story, which is- we, we, we tried to come up with why we were relevant, which 
took a long time and a lot of brand agency money virtually, <laughs> but, like, but go on, guess what books are. And um, one of the things we, we talked about was like, we're saving the powers of concentration. Yeah. Because, yeah, so important. It, because in this world, there are no powers of concentration left. No. I haven't got any. I, I think I'm naturally not a very concentrated sort of person I anyway. I myself in your bracket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but what I'm, do you read fiction, Tim? Um, if I'm, I'm currently reading a fiction book, but it would have, I don't want to say how long I've been reading this fiction book for. But it's kind of interesting because fiction was started by men for women to keep them occupied. Did you know that? No, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, in the wow. late 18th century. Oh, yes. And that's carried on. That's carried on. And fiction is still largely, as we know from our data, read by women. Largely, you know. And, and, and I don't really understand why that is. And I was asking a student at LCC, actually, who was a very bright guy and he was working on, on the publishing course. And he said, I don't think that for men, it's the same currency as it is for women. And it's not something you use as currency. Whereas we're seeing a lot of younger women now with TikTok, BookTok, reading is a real currency. It's a way of yeah. communicating. It's, it is a way, it's, it's like you were saying, Tash, it's a way of sharing an experience, an mm. emotional experience. And, and, the more that men can do that as well, the better, really, because... Oh, that's a great question. The only thing I can think of in my world is that between me and my like male friends, we'd probably tell each other stories of just our day-to-day. But when we're looking to read something, we're trying to grab something. So like a lot of my... Like I've got one friend of mine from Swindon um, and he loves... Like we send each other motivational posts, so like any motivational books. So like Rich Dad, Poor Dad or... Da, 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 and just and a lot of it especially around my friends is how to be better with money so it's a lot of books around that and how to make sure we're financially stable and making better financial decisions i need to make a note here no but <laughs> it, it, but then I, I think from my world it's also understanding that like i'm second generation nigerian so it's understanding that now we've got a platform where we're fortunate enough to have grown up in this country um understand the education system understand the the ways the, the land works but now it's also making sure that our money and everything is staying within our four walls, but also just doing better decisions with it. So like I think reading is an investment for you. Yeah, you need to get something out of it. Exactly. Whereas I think reading the story, it's not that it's not an investment, but I think the idea that oh, I can read this book and become more knowledgeable. I know this sounds really archaic. As a man, as as a person that can help my family, my friends. I think I'm not trying to, let me not generalize this because this will go on Twitter, but like, yeah. Um, yeah, I just think for, for most men, it's more like that. Whereas I think I love a good story, but I would probably watch film or go to an exhibition. I, I like photography, I, I do photography. So I'd go to a photo book and I would more get my story from that and kind of make the dots. For you, it's sort of reading to learn mm. as opposed to reading for enjoyment. And mm. I know a lot of men the same. My, my partner, he reads fact books and sort of geographical history books and things like that, yeah. where very, very seldom will he read a, a sort of fictional story that has not got some kind of root in factual, you know, learning that he can then sort of bring up in conversations or yeah. whatever. I think that's an interesting point. It's something I've never thought about but either. Can, but also can nonfiction, because we're all talking about nonfiction as well, be a story? Yes, of course yeah. it can. Yeah. Yeah. And can you learn from another person's experience and story? Is that totally valid? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we're having, having a raging debate about whether you can tell someone else's story mm. in a valid way at the moment, which I find very interesting and I don't There's no fully have an answer. Yeah. Well, this department about representation, right? Men created fiction to tell, to distract women. So men 
are telling someone else's story. To entertain. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yellow wallpaper. Um, but then we're also talking about nonfiction and the accessibility to that mm. as a man. Um, is that because we've grown up with men's stories being telling in nonfiction in history consistently, overtly? Mm. As an LGBT plus person, I never saw my story told ever. I, I realized I was queer when I was at school. There was no LGBT education or historical education. I wasn't represented in fiction. Mm. That was under Section 28, mm. which you know actively removed the ability to do that. So hearing what everyone says here, I'm... It's so funny because at the moment, thinking about what I'm reading in mm. fiction, What's the last, last three books, <laughs> the last three books are um, all by queer authors unintentionally. I think it's because we're in this time and this movement where I'm like, oh my God, gimme, 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 yeah, yeah, content, yeah, content, yeah. content. Yeah. Yeah. There's like Henry Fry, Lauren John Joseph, Leon Kahneman, and they're all wonderful storytellers who are st- telling stories where I go, oh God, I remember that happening. And that's the first time in my life, I'm 36, that that's really, really happened. Yeah. But it's kind of what we're rooting How around here. queer stories weren't, storytellers were writers who weren't telling their own yeah, story. Exactly. Who've never told their own story. Yeah. Maybe Jane Austen was queer, we yeah. don't know. Love that. I hope so. <laughs> I think she was. Actually. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure she was. <laughs> She's so cool. There's a podcast She's so, in that yeah. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, definitely, I'm definitely. Yeah. That needs to be on the logbook. That yeah, needs to be on the logbook. Yeah. We need, yeah. afterwards. We need that. <laughs> you know, but, but, but she would be, you know, now mm. she would be out there writing loud and proud. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I totally understand what you're saying. There are no children's books yeah. for queer children. Yeah. That is being changed yes, totally. now, totally. totally. And a lot of, the, so our children's division are fully on that. Yeah. You know, in the same way, there are so many books, more books for people of colour than there ever were. Yeah. Yeah. We have yeah. the colour colour in lit, lit in colour, mm. which is a massive thing to change the curriculum, yeah. which will also include no, it's queer stories. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's, it's also very shocking. And I think yeah. the only way I can identify that is seeing what's happened to women, yeah. um, which is why I brought that up. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but women's stories are still belittled. Totally. Still 100%. belittled. So yeah. I published Marion Keyes, who's a hugely brilliant mm. author, very funny, mm. very clever, very witty Irish author. And there are, the Irish are great storytellers. It's built into yeah. our history. It's, it's called Shadow Sing. <laughs> it's built into your history. It's built into your beautiful language and your way of talking and your way of relaying a story. You can make running for a bus sound like the best story <laughs> in the world. Well, she can. And she said at Hay Festival recently, you know, I've, she didn't talk about herself because she's too modest to do that. She said, what I do has been belittled and called commercial fiction mm. for years mm. because no one will... Because because it suits men to do that. Yeah. Sorry, not you, Tim. No. And 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 I think there's a lot of truth in that because yeah. the literary world has been run by men, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. for a long time, yeah. who are like a boys' club, yeah. and therefore commercial is. Mm. Oh, well, it sells it sells millions of books. Mm. We won't mm. review it, yeah. you know. And I, I find I found that when I really realised that, I found that so shocking and upsetting. Sue Townsend could never be shortlisted for the Booker back mm. in the day. Never, never. She's a funny woman. Yeah. Funny women are the worst of all. Yeah. You know. As it, so I, that's how I understand that feeling of being marginalised and not. Yeah, totally. Which is terrible. Well, there's an element of censorship in that too, because yeah. it's categorising someone. And then you think about booksellers and bookshops and libraries even that libraries free accessibility to books well who's deciding what books mm-hmm. go in there mm-hmm. yes. it's so it's so intertwined and linked but it's moving on and that's the good thing yeah. Yeah. you know 100 percent. yeah and i think actually when you were saying just about the books you read the last se- section of books i read was the noughts and crosses books mm-hmm. and i read them late like i remember my friend talking she's to incredible. them incredible she's incredible yeah and reading that and it's funny because it's fiction but yeah. reading that and 
I wish I read it when I, I wish I gave it to my 16 year old self, yeah. but my 26 year old self just enjoyed it just as much. Yeah. And it was the first time I read a book and felt hatred towards a character and, mm. and felt so much joy and passion towards characters. And it was like, wow. And, and actually the, even though it's a fictional world, the lived experiences that I talked about in that book, I could relate to. Yeah. I could just relate to the fact that there's so much love in that story. And, mm. and at the end of the day, it's just two people that just, all they want to do is just be together. You can either take yourself back to that time or you even know, even in your own mind, maybe you're looking at someone, you're dating someone, you're like, oh, will this work because of this? Even just that question alone was like, wow, to see this inner book portrayed back to me in such visceral terms, I was like, whoa, this, um, yeah, she was. I think that's what's so exciting now, isn't it? That, you know, for so long stories have been censored. The decision, you know, the, the, the powers that be that make decisions have given us one type of voice, whether that's in film or, you know, books or, or any type of medium. But now I think, which is really exciting, is there's a real appetite for unknown voices or voices that haven't been at the fore previously. And I think that, you know, that comes across in films, in books, in journalism. And I think that what's something that's really important for anyone looking to tell new stories and find new stories is to look outside of themselves. Yes. I think mm -hmm. we get you know, we're all completely guilty of being stuck in our own echo chambers from time to time, which is natural because we all, you know, main live in a certain syndrome. bubble. We've all got main characters, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> related to the book. Um, but, you know, looking at different places in the world that maybe have different creative infrastructures, infrastructures mm -hmm. looking at places where stories haven't been coming from before, because I think, you know, there's been perhaps this very, very narrow-minded view that the only relevant stories have been sort of cis white stories. Yeah. But now, but obviously that is not the case. And there have been stories coming from everywhere forever. We just haven't been looking for yeah, them. And I think what's so exciting now is that there is, like I was saying, an appetite to look for these new stories and to immerse yourself in them, even if you're not necessarily from that background. And I think that opens up a huge amount of sort of learning and debate. And, you know, to Louise's point, I still don't think there's a right answer. I don't have it at least about who should be allowed to tell other people's mm. stories. But even the fact that we're getting into that debate, I think is a good thing because it means that these stories are coming to the forefront, which yeah. they haven't been for so, so long. That's yeah. interesting, especially if you think about the movement through time and at-risk heritage. Yeah. I interviewed someone two years ago for the podcast. His name was James. He's in, he was in his 80s and he remembered seeing a poster on the wall of heaven talking about this strange virus that was coming to the UK. And that was his first memory of what we call HIV, but then AIDS. And then he died um, earlier this year in January. And I just, it was very emotional, but the, after I'd interviewed him and recorded him, he, he said he, does, he never remembered anyone asking those questions. And now that story is gone. Mm -hmm. So it's about sharing those other stories yeah. that aren't yours, but doing it now, you know, mm -hmm. finding them now. I think as long as it's authentic, that's the main thing. Of yeah. course, authentic to the person, the story who it is, and authentic yeah. to the that's the word, and and authentic yeah. to the audience as yeah. well. Because yeah. it's like, for example, being black, our black stories have been told, but sometimes not been told by the right people, yeah, and exactly. sometimes fed back to us, and we're like, mm, yeah. we know that's not right, yeah. but okay, you're telling us like, yeah. So yeah. I think as long as it's authentic to the person, the story it is, and to the people that you're telling it to, mm -hmm. I think you can. Oh, I'd like to think you can never go wrong. I want to know about your stories. So how did you guys get into the industry and what was the challenges you faced as you got into the industry? Someone else answers because I've just got to dig back to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so um, okay, I can go first. Uh, so in the audio world, I started, I started this CIC, Community Interest Company, about promoting women and non-binary people in music. And from that, I got into community radio, started doing a radio show, platforming those spaces, putting on 
uh, nights across uh, gig nights and just giving a space for those people to, I suppose, share their stories, um, tell their stories, have that place. And through that, and whilst also volunteering at Switchboard, this charity, and then becoming, I'm on the board now, I'm one of the chairs of the charity. I was literally, I suppose, the way I got into podcasting and that kind of storytelling was rifling around in the attic one day at the charity, opening up a box, picking up this A4, like for this decrepit A4 book, opening it up. And as the, the pages fell onto my lap, the stories, these logbook entries, these calls from the 70s, 80s and 90s just threw, like fell out of the pages and, and I was caught, I was taken. And uh, I just knew I had to do something. So I spent two years in the archive reading these logbooks, um, cataloging them, learning my stories, learning my history. And then I started doing presentations around the UK about telling these stories, these untold stories. And then from that, I, with another producer on the podcast, Adam, um, we interviewed hundreds of people from across LGBTQ plus communities and created this podcast, uh, which interweaves different themes covering those different years from the HIV and AIDS crisis to challenges around having children, a police raids of the 70s. And after that, we the podcast did really well. It was great. I'm one of the hosts with Adam. And then we set up a, a podcast production company, which is called Aunt Nell, which means listen in Polari, which is this old queer language that grew up out of Cockney rhyming slang in Italian. And it's just that, that in itself is a wonderful method Say of storytelling. Polari, P O. No, I know that. What's, what's your podcast called? Um, the Logbooks yes. and the production company is called Aunt Nell, which is Listen. And now we're working on lots of other different podcasts and audio creation. And it's just, it's just, yeah, it's kind of telling those stories that haven't been told that aren't necessarily mine. I can relate to the one I'm working on at the moment, Black and Gay Back in the Day, because it's queer history, but those aren't my stories. And those people we're bringing together through intergenerational conversations, like what you were saying in mm. your family and your girlfriend's family, your partner's family, you know, you didn't know that that was going on because those conversations aren't always happening. And um, I suppose it's just about creating those spaces. Mm. Um, for me, if I sort of take it way back before sort of career um, type of trajectory, I've, I've always been really interested in, in storytelling, I think, because it's comes from kind of my family background. Half of my family is Irish and my other, the other half is Jamaican. And both have a very, very rich storytelling kind of built into their history. My grandma has an incredible life story coming over from Jamaica to Northern Ireland in the 50s. And I kind of grew up hearing those stories, which always made me interested to, and I guess, be curious. And I think that um, that is something that I took through, you know, my school years. English was always my favorite subject. As a kid, I'd write like weird little books and things like that. <laughs> and yeah, you know, we've we all done it. Um, and then I took a sort of a slight detour and thought I wanted to be a fashion designer, which was not the right choice. Uh, I did a foundation degree at Camberwell in fashion and then actually came to LCC um, to study journalism, um, which again opened me up to, you know, even more stories and sort of the ways to actually tell them and get them out there from there. Uh, well, whilst actually at LCC, I interned at, you know, anywhere that would take me, magazines, local newspapers, national newspapers, all over the place, just to sort of get more experience. Um, I started working in women's magazines from the point of graduation, worked at a number of different places before landing at a, a documentary company where I made short uh, form documentaries that were syndicated by places like The Guardian and The Huffington Post. Uh, from there, I started working 
uh, at a fashion magazine um, where I started as the online editor and then worked up to become the editor. It's called Hunger, which is run by Rankin, who also actually started yep. Dazed from here. Yeah. So there's a trajectory there. Um, and I was there for six years, which was amazing. Um, I learned so much. I was kind of chucked in the deep end, which was actually great because it forced me to constantly think on my feet. You know, I've interviewed so many incredible people that I've learned a lot from over the years. And then from there, after six years of being the editor of the magazine, I took another slight detour and ended up at WeTransfer as the editor-in-chief of WePresent, which is, like I said earlier, the digital arts platform. To tell you the truth, I was anxious about taking this role that I'm currently in because I'd never worked at a brand before. I was sort of like, you know, is it is it is it selling out? You know, am I going to have to censor the type of stories I want to tell? Thankfully, that hasn't been the case at all. And the company gives us so much freedom to be able to tell stories that matter without any kind of brand, uh, you know, interjection into them. And I've been there now for three and a half years. And I think it's what I found interesting about the current role and sort of talking to friends, you know, that I met here on the journalism course and are still very good friends with, is that a lot of people that studied traditional journalism are moving into brand storytelling, um, which I think is quite interesting because it, again, opens up a new space for people to be able to tell stories. Some brand stories obviously are terrible. Um, some are great. And I think some are really important. And I think that there's, um, you know, the more spaces that are receptive of stories, of representative stories, of diverse stories, and are getting them out into the sort of media and mainstream in any way, I think is a good thing. Um, so I'm excited to see where the sort of future of, of that goes as well. And Louise? Talking about Hagon is just totally irrelevant. It was so long ago. So I think I won't bore people with that. But listening to you two, what I would say I did do is take a very long time, uh, like a really long time, like six, seven, eight years to learn what I was doing before I took a big step into anything where I was actually responsible for, you know, any kind of money really because, or anything like that. Because I, because, and you've def definitely both done the same. And I think that's, that's the kind of message I would say is you don't have to rush anything. And it's, of course, there's an imperative to earn money and need to keep yourself and live. And that goes side by side with really working out what you want to do. And that can take some time. And I'm seeing people coming into to book publishing now in their 30s, late 20s, whereas I, I think when I started, it's like, okay, you hit the ground running at, you you know, you leave your college, if you go to college and you hit the ground running and you get a job and you stay in a job, that's just not the case anymore. And I don't think it's good to do that. I think you definitely need to feel around. And if you're going into a media industry, all these conversations are probably equally relevant to your students at the moment, because no one will really know what they want to do. I didn't know, I had no idea. So I would say, I definitely, definitely learned what I was doing. And I learned what I was doing by literally learning about how a sentence works, how you do the punctuation, which is still incredibly important because it changes the meaning of everything. You know, it doesn't feel important now because everyone's texting, WhatsApping. Yeah, there's no punctuation. But, <laughs> but, but actually, it, 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 it does change everything. In a, in a word and the way we communicate and how we communicate responsibly is incredibly important. So actually mm. learning that editing is what you do and what you do mm. and when to put things in and when not to put things in is really important. So I learned that. Mm. So I'm not a pure storyteller, but I can help someone tell a story. I can, you know, you either have a gift of creativity, which is what we're talking about, or you have a gift of helping people be mm. creative if you're in the, in the media, which is what I do and what most mm. people that come out of this college mm. will do. They'll be the odd ranking, but, you know, actually most of us will just be having a, a really joyful life, hopefully, helping others tell their stories. Mm. So that's what I always, re I found out quite quickly I wanted to do. I will say I was a great reader always. 
And I was. And I sort of, particularly fiction, actually, I, I used to kind of buy a hardback of a favourite author with student grant at the expense of something else. It wasn't like, okay, I could just buy that um, because I really wanted it and read it. So I was always into stories. And I think you have to be in my job. It's no good just coming to publishing if you don't love reading because mm. really, yeah. you save it for someone else, you know. Yeah. But that was the thing I would say is learn your craft and don't be too much of a rush so that you can take, when you take the next step, you really know what you're talking about. You can sit in a room and you can really be authentic and you can go, yes or no, I do agree with that or I don't. Because actually going in and blagging it, bullshitting it, ain't going to work. Yeah. Would you agree? I love I that. Agree. Don't rush yeah. your own story. No, yeah. don't so rush good. your own story. Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. I'm saying. What about your proudest achievement, guys, in industry? I mentioned earlier in the conversation that one of the best stories I think I've told, been able to help facilitate, at least in my current job, is this short film called The Long Goodbye, um, which was created by Riz Ahmed and Anil Korea. It's about sort of rising intolerance in Britain. We commissioned it in 2019. It was the first film that I'd commissioned in my new role. It was a bit of a risk because it was really brutal and the company had never put out a story like this before, but everyone that, you know, um, read the treatment was like, this is incredibly important. It, it, we need to make it. And, you know, cut a long story short, uh, earlier this year, we were lucky enough to win an Academy Award for it for the best live action short film, um, which was incredible. But it, I think what was particularly a proud moment about it wasn't the shiny, you know, gold statue and like, oh, yeah, look what we've got. But it was the fact that a really, really important story that resonated with so many people had reached that level of mainstream mm -hmm. success, which meant that it opened up conversations uh, with new audiences, you know, it was it, it was a British film, but it, you know, made it over in South America as well. And where there's obviously a lot of synergy with intolerance, obviously, and what's happening in the different societies. And so I think for me, it was, you know, it was great to win an award and it was a lovely moment to, you know, hear it read out. But what was important was the fact that being able to facilitate this kind of story meant that so many other people were able to resonate with it. And I think that's something that uh, mm. I'll treasure. Mm. <laughs> well done. Mm. Thank you. Very good. I think finding other ways to tell similar stories, yeah. different platforms. So off of the back of the Logbooks podcast, we created, we worked with two ed education charities and created an LGBT History Month assembly, which was audio clips of the people sharing their stories. Um, and that could be played for any, any school that wanted to download it um, this February. Mm -hmm. So creating an assembly that so, went into or potentially could have gone into every single school and imagining what it would have been like to be that little kid mm. and listening to those different stories. And um, we got it illustrated. It was like really accessible, really lovely. I feel really proud of that because yeah. that's, yeah, that's something that never would have happened when I was at school. 100%. Please yourself. I'm really proud to work for Penguin. Mm. I love the Penguin brand. Love that brand. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, it's been helpful occasionally because people, other people love it. But I, I really am. I love it. Every time I go into the building where I work, and I see that little orange disc with the bird in it, I go, mm. because it has published the first of so many things. It has stood up for so many things. Mm. It does believe in inclusivity. It does believe in diversity. You know, it needs to stand for those things better and more. But actually, if you look back, it probably, it has, it has stood up mm. for things and it conti will continue to do so. So it's meaningful to me in that way. And I think it should, and it does say, quality whatever it does which you know i bet your productions do too and i and i do i do love that and we try really really hard and we try really really hard to be mindful mm. of what we're doing and whether it's right or wrong i'm sure we're gonna come up a, come a cropper 
at some point and we'll have to deal with that but we'll try and deal with it as honestly and we'll lean into it as much as we can because we have to keep that brand safe and I think probably most people that work at Penguin it's funny because if you work outside Penguin in the industry um, it's like they love themselves as so well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like they're a bit arrogant. <laughs> and that's just not the case. But but what and I when I got to Penguin, I thought, right. In fact, I was I was sacked almost the first day I got there because I decided I wanted to change the colour of the disc because it didn't actually go with one of the jackets that I was producing. <laughs> <laughs> that's what so I went I put I put a we put, I think it was a lime green penguin on Marion Keys' first book the And the then CEO got me into his office and he went. If there's no room, to, and there was, there was like, we called them the brand police because like that has to be that size, it has to be that colour, it has to be facing that way. And obviously now that's all rubbish. But then back in the day, that was the thing. And uh, he said, if, "If you can't, if you can't accommodate the penguin, then there's no place for you in this <laughs> in this company." Wow! And I thought, wow, I've been sacked. So I totally ignored it. Went back to my desk and just got on with my job, which is quite. When I look back on that now, I think oh, that's quite yeah. subversive, really. But after a while, I, I got pulled into it and thinking actually I, I really couldn't work anywhere else if I work in publishing yeah. mm-hmm. because for me it's the place yeah. you know and I think that's why people outside it don't like it very much <laughs> just my personal yeah. so yeah that's my proudest achievement is working awesome. for Penguin so yeah what is your advice to your university self so put yourself back in those shoes oh. Oh. I guess for you would be ignore everything your boss says and just continue going right uh, okay, <laughs> okay. I'll, I will go there um, I I would say I, I didn't have any trajectory when I left university. I just didn't know what I wanted to mm. do at all. I was one of the few people actually then that didn't because most people did go straight into jobs. And I was quite worried about it. I was quite anxious. And I think and I've got children who have left college and have similarly similar feelings. It is a very anxious time. I would look back on myself and say, there's maybe no rhyme or reason to where you're going, but stay calm because yeah. it will come. Trust the process. You know, it's so, it's so interesting. Trust the process. Because yeah, if you've got friends who are medics and lawyers and doctors and you just think, oh, or actors or, you know, whatever it is. And I, and I think, no, it's okay. Just stay calm and trust, trust the process and just do your best work yeah. wherever you are. Nice. Following on from that, I'd say trust your gut. You know, I think, that, and also be, be assertive. I, as, if I'm talking about my specific university self, I, I should have said no more. Um, and I've worked in places that have, you know, treated me a certain way because I'm a woman and also back then because I was a young woman. And it's things that if someone had said that to me now, there is no way I would take it. Yeah. And I, But I've built confidence through, you know, age and experience. And I think that learning when to assert yourself as a young person going out into a new role is really important. I think there's a, there's a obviously don't be arrogant and go in thinking you know everything because you don't. But also know what you're comfortable with, know what your morals are, know what your principles are. And if they are uh, shaken, stand up for yourself. And, you know, because I think you have to feel right about what you're doing. So I think trusting your gut and knowing what you what you will stand for and what you want to stand for is really important. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Retweet, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think for me, I, yeah, I completely agree with what Louise said. I, I think slowing down, don't rushing your story don't rushing how long it takes to work out who you are and what your morals are I think we're so overwhelmed when we're young and mm-hmm. it was very noisy in my head when I was that age mm-hmm. and I've learned to slow down and learn to listen to myself and I think if you do that then you're going to be fine awesome well thank you very much guys and I'm continue telling your own stories amazing stories all of you and um yeah thank you very much for your time thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you guys 
We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of LCC's Value Talks podcast. Keep up to date with future episodes and the latest on life at the college by following us on social media. You can check out our YouTube channel by searching for London College of Communication and also follow us over on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at LCC London. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.